we're going to be talking this morning about our words, and certainly we, we love words. This week on Friday, uh, my wife and I, my wife Nancy, some of you may know who she is, some of you may not, she's a beautiful young lady, runs around here a lot of times like a chicken with her head cut off and taking care of the, the kiddos and all of that, but she's pregnant with our fourth child, and we heard those words at the ultrasound this Friday, it's a boy, and so, uh, so we're absolutely, we're excited, and uh, certainly would have been excited no matter what, but, uh, but Hank in particular, our son, who now of course has two sisters, not stopped jumping up and down when he heard those words, and so we had to calm him down so that the, the tech could continue with the ultrasound, but you know, we, 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 love, we love words. I mean, they're, they're, those are encouraging and exciting words. You know, we look forward to those. Those words have huge implications. You know, we're trying to figure out room arrangements and all of that. And, and those words were really the catalyst for, okay, now what's going to happen? And you know how words are like that. And you know, we, I think as, as humans, and then particularly as Americans, we love words. You know, LeBron James had his press conference Thursday night, or whatever you want to call it, his one-hour LeBron James extravaganza, whatever, on ESPN, and I was traveling, and I didn't get to see it, but he realized that more people watched that one-hour special on LeBron James than watched him in the NBA Finals three years ago. More people watched him talk than watched him play basketball. Now, the man, I'm sure, is very articulate, but he is a much better basketball player than he is spokesman or speechmaker, but more people wanted to hear him talk. What did they want to hear? One word, and that was their city's name. That was it. If they had heard the word Cleveland, and Cleveland this morning would be a much different place than it is today. Some of you have tracked that story, and you know. And they hate him now. Oh, they hate him. He's going to Miami. But those words, we hang on those words. I, I was listening to the radio and, and, and watching some programs after all of that the next day, and they were talking about, you know, how gripping his words were, just hanging on every word. And the guy who's interviewing is asking some questions before he finally gets to say, now, where are you going to play for the next five years? And they, they hung on every single word. And we also know that, that we say lots of words. Not only do we love words, we say lots of words. A few weeks ago, I referenced this, that, that on average in a given day, it is estimated that you write a 54-page book with your words. You say enough words to fill up every day a 54-page book. Imagine having to read that every night, what you said all day long. Mm, some of us would cringe, wouldn't we? Some of us would cringe at our words. You know, it's also theorized that, <clears throat> that there's a difference between the amount of words that are said from women and the amount of words that are said from men. Some estimations, though it's not been clinically proven, I'm not sure how you could, because for some women, you just can't count that high, I suppose. But it is estimated, that was a cheap shot, I'm sorry. It was estimated, it was, uh, yeah, I've got the microphone. It was estimated that, that, tw that women, on average, speak 25,000 words a day, and men speak about 10,000. And I, I heard preachers say this past week that the problem is, is that by the time that each of those get home, let's say they're married, the man's already spent his 10,000 words. He's done. The woman hadn't even gotten started yet. And so she's got to get all 25,000 in before they go to bed, you know. And so, guys, maybe you can relate sometimes to that. But certainly words are a powerful, powerful thing. I looked up this week what happens when we speak. You know, I get up every Sunday and I, and I speak a lot of words. 
What is it anatomically that's going on? I found this. I think this is interesting. Here is the anatomy of speech. Maybe you've studied this. Maybe you're a, a health professional. Maybe you took some classes at some point. You had to study this. Spoken words are produced when air expelled from the lungs passes through a series of structures within the chest and throat and passes out through the mouth. The structure, here it is, involved in that process are as follows. Air that leaves the lungs travels up the trachea, or the windpipe, into the larynx. The larynx is a long, tubish, a longish tube that joins the trachea to the lower part of the mouth. Two sections of the larynx consist of two thick muscular folds of tissue known as the vocal cords. We think of cords like a piano cords, and there they are just, you know, it's, it's just muscle inside our, inside our throat. When a person is simply breathing, the vocal cords are relaxed. Air passes through them easily without producing a sound when you're just breathing. When a person wishes to say a word, muscles in the vocal cords tighten up. Air that passes through the tightened vocal cords begins to vibrate, producing a sound. The nature of the sound depends on factors such as how much air is pushed through the vocal cords and how tightly the vocal cords are stretched. The moving air, now a form of sound, passes upward and out of the larynx. A flap at the top of the larynx, the epiglottis, that was, that was pretty good, I just said that, it opens and closes to allow air to enter and leave the larynx. The epiglottis is closed when a person is eating, thankfully preventing food from passing into the larynx and trachea. But it's, and this is a problem when folks can't stop talking long enough to eat, you know, they begin to choke. And so anyway, <clears throat> but it is open when a person breathes or speaks. Once a sound leaves the vocal cords, it is altered by other structures in the mouth, such as the tongue and lips. A person can form these structures into various shapes to make different sounds. Saying the letters D, M, and P exemplifies how your lips and tongue are involved in this process. Some of you are saying that right now, the tongue is right, oh yeah. Other parts of the mouth also contribute to the sound that is finally produced. These parts include the soft palate or the roof of the mouth and the back of the mouth or the, the hard or bony palate in the front and the teeth. The nose also provides an alternative means of issuing sound and is part of the production of speech. Movement of the entire lower jaw can alter the size of the mouth cavern and influence the tone and volume of the speech. The tongue is the most agile body part in forming sounds. It is a powerful muscle that can take many shapes, flat, convex, curled, and can move from front to back to, the con to contact the palate, teeth, or gums. The front of the tongue may move upward to contact the hard palate while the back of the tongue is depressed. Essentially, these movements open or obstruct the passage of air through the mouth. During speech, the tongue moves rapidly and changes shapes continually to form partial or complete closure of the vocal tract necessarily necessary to manufacture words. It's amazing what goes into making one little word. And the tongue is the most influential part of all of that. Isn't it amazing? Words are certainly fascinating, certainly important, not only to us, but they're important to God. <clears throat> and we're going to look at that this morning. We've been for the last several weeks, and we'll continue as we just kind of march through this, taking a break from time to time. We're continuing in the book of James in a series that we're calling Authentic Christianity. And really, that's the test of the book of James. Is your faith real? Has it made any legitimate and tangible difference in your life? And if it has, then that's evidence that it is real on the inside. And if it hasn't, if there's been no change in your life whatsoever that is visible and, and, and observable, then there's a good chance there's been no change on the inside. And we know that as believers in Jesus Christ, that that means that we are changed on the inside. We are made new. And so in this whole, this whole book of James, 
he's really giving some tests. He says, hey, line your life up against this and see if there's been real change on the inside. Because if there has, it'll be produced like this. And so we've looked at those things. How do you handle trials? Just really tough times. And James says, certainly everybody's going to face it, but those who have been changed on the inside have now a different response to those. They trust God. They seek His wisdom. They have some perspective. How do you handle temptations? Everybody's going to face it. James says those who have been changed on the inside now handle temptation differently. How do you handle the Word of God? Do you, do you hunger for it and want more of it? James says if you've been changed on the inside and Jesus lives there, then you will. You'll want more of it. How do you deal with people who are less fortunate? James says you'll have real compassion. It won't just be in words, but it'll be in what you do. We looked a, a few weeks ago at favoritism and how those who have truly been changed by God on the inside will not play favorites in any way whatsoever. And that's an ongoing process, certainly, as God grows us and shapes us and changes us. And this morning we get to James chapter 3, and we look at the power of words. So if you've got your Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me to James chapter 3. You may already be there. And hold your place there. As we look this morning at taming the tongue. It's a familiar passage, as we'll get to it in just a minute, a familiar passage to many of you. Uh, for some, you'll, you'll, you'll say, well, I, you know, I, I've read that before, heard that before, I didn't know it was there. And for others, maybe this is brand new stuff, but, but James, in every chapter of his letter, mentions words, mentions the power of the tongue, mentions those things. And so it's obviously very important, and he really gives in chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, the definitive Bible teaching on our words. And so everything else is not, it's not as if it's unimportant, but everything else in the Bible that talks about the Word sort of comes to a head right here in what James is talking about. So let's look at it in uh, verses 1 to 12 of James chapter 3. Not many should become teachers, my brothers, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a mature man, who is also able to control his whole body. So as we pause there for just a second, understand James is a pastor, he's a teacher, he's a guy who loves people, he's a shepherd, he's not somebody who's standing there throwing lightning bolts from, from the pulpit. He says, my brothers, and it's interesting, he'll repeat that over and over. He understands this is a sensitive topic. It's important, but it's sensitive. He wants them to understand his heart. So as we look at this today, understand this comes from somebody who cares, who loves so he says, my brothers. Now, in verse 3, now when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we also guide the whole animal. And consider ships. Though very large and driven by fierce winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So, too, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it boasts great things. Consider how large a forest a small fire ignites, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among the parts of our bodies. It pollutes the whole body, sets the course of the life of life on fire, and is set on fire by hell. Now, how about that for talking about your tongue? Goodness gracious. We'll get to a little bit more of that in the next week or so. For every creature, animal or bird, reptile or fish, is tamed and has been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. You heard that verse before? Probably so. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. We come to church on Sunday and we sing. And with it, we curse men who are made in God's likeness. We say something we shouldn't say as we leave the parking lot. Out of the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, there it is again. These things should not be this way. 
Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree produce, produce olives, my brothers, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a saltwater spring yield fresh water. Well, he's got a lot to say here. He really does. And he, and he, he crams it all in into 12 verses. But what powerful words he uses to describe the power of our words. Now, I want to give you some groundwork as we look over the, we'll look over the next, I'll just give you a heads up, over the next three weeks, we're going to work our way through these 12 verses. So we'll finish out chapter 3, verses 1 to 12 in, in July. And so that kind of gives you something to look forward to. If you're a person who says, you know what, I, I, I'd like to read the Bible, I'm not sure really where to start. Take for the next three weeks, starting today, Read those first 12 verses of James. Just read it every day. Memorize it if you can. Look at it. Let it sink in. That's what we're going to be talking about. So I'll just give you a heads up. You can be prepared for that. Maybe you'd study ahead a little bit. You've got some resources. You'd look at it, study it, see what you think. See what it means. So I want to lay some groundwork, though, before moving through this particular passage. And, and the groundwork sort of centers on, on this particular theme that I think you'll agree that James highlights, and certainly the entire Bible supports, that your words matter. They matter. It's not as if they're, they're no big deal. They, they actually do matter. I came across some, some quotes that sort of highlight this. Just, this is not necessarily we need to hear from the Bible that your words matter, though it's certainly in there, and that's where it comes from. This is really common knowledge, common sense, that what you say matters. Here, here are some, some quotes, quotes about words. Handle them carefully, for words have more power than atom bombs. Been there? Speech is the mirror of the soul. As a man speaks, so he is. The trouble with talking too fast is you may say something you haven't thought of yet. Hmm. We laugh because we do it all the time, don't we? Goodness gracious. Wise men, here's what Plato said. Wise men talk because they have something to say. Fools because they have to say something. And he was a pretty wise man. To speak and to speak well are two things. A fool may talk, but a wise man speaks. Women speak because they wish to speak, whereas a man speaks only when driven to speech by something outside himself, like, for instance, he can't find any clean socks. How about that? Speak when you are angry, and you will make the best speech you'll ever regret. Isn't that true? If you wouldn't write it and sign it, don't say it. Don't speak unless you can improve on the silence. That's a good way to look at it. Speak clearly if you speak at all. Carve every word before you let it fall. And then finally, Will Rogers said, never miss a good chance to shut up. Isn't that true? We know by common knowledge that our words matter. And it's not just by common knowledge, though, because those, those things that are common knowledge emanate from the Word of God. And so we know that our words matter. I want to give you from James just some groundwork here, and then we'll move through a, a truth quickly today and, and, and move on in the next couple of weeks to the rest of this passage. But let's lay the groundwork. Why do our words matter? Well, one reason is they reveal your heart. They reveal your heart. If you're following along on the back of the bulletin and, and you know the Scripture then you probably guessed that. They reveal your heart. But we know this to be true. In James there, chapter 3, as I said, hold your place there, and, I, and I'll, I'll reference some other scriptures, and maybe you can write those, flip there with us, whatever you'd like to do. But hold your place in James, because we'll center on this particular passage as we flip around a little bit. 
But look again with me at James chapter 3, verse 9. With it, talking about our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse men who are made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these, these things should not be this way. Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree produce olives, my brothers, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a saltwater spring yield fresh water. What's he talking about? He's talking about something deep within. Something that, that eventually is going to bubble up and come out or grow and sprout and, and reveal its true colors, so to speak. And he, he equates those things to our words. They're, they're not just stuck in our mouth, just sort of swirling around, and that's where they come from. They come from deep within. You realize when the Bible uses the word heart 99 times out of 100, it's not talking about your physical heart, the one that beats inside of you. It's talking about your inner person, who you really are. That's what it's talking about. It's, it's a figure of speech for who you are on the inside. And James makes it clear that your words reveal your heart. What's on the inside is coming out. It's just the way it is. You hang around somebody long enough, you'll figure that out. They can mask it for a while, but certainly it will come out. What is in the heart is revealed in the speech. Look with me if you've got your Bible still open there to Matthew chapter 12. Maybe you write down the reference, maybe you turn there, whatever's most convenient for you. Matthew chapter 12, first of the books in the New Testament. Jesus himself talks about this same truth when he's talking to the Pharisees. And he's sort of getting, well, he's not sort of, he's really getting on them and, and, and telling them how it is. In verse 34 of chapter 12, Matthew 12, 34, he says, Brood of vipers. Now, that's not a nice way to, you know, to be described. He just he tells them how it is. How can you speak good things when you are evil? What's he saying? There's nothing good inside you, so there's nothing good that's going to come out. And then he says those words that we all are probably familiar with, for the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. You can't contain it. Eventually, what's in your heart is going to bubble up, fill you up, and then spew out all over the place, good, bad, or otherwise. It's coming out of your mouth. Jesus talks about it. What's eventually, what is in the heart will eventually come out of the mouth. The truth is you can often gauge someone's spirituality, someone's heart, someone's faith by their language, by what they say. And I don't say that because I'm making it up. I say it only because that's what the Scripture says. You can get a good read on somebody and what's really in their heart by what they say. And I'm not just talking about what they say at church. I'm talking about over the long haul. What does this person say? How do they speak? How do they talk? You can figure out what's going on in their heart. Heart change, the Bible says, produces a new person inside of us. And a new person inside of us, since our hearts have been changed, ought to and should produce new speech new language, new words, new ways of saying things, new tone of voice. And certainly that is true that we know that new life equals new language. This is why we pursue not just external change, but true inner life and heart change. When I was a student pastor, it would have been very easy, and I tell you, when I first got started, it, it was it was something that I battled, it would have been very easy to simply, and, and parents, you know this, to, to threaten and to do certain things that would produce an external change so that the students that I was leading would act right when I needed them to. 
we had in, in the student ministry that I led of around 100 high school students. Many of them did not act right. You get, under, you get enough high school students in one room, they're not going to act right. You with me on that? You know what I'm talking about? Amen. All right, I know what you're saying. You've had teenagers around you before. Many of them are great. Some of them aren't. It would have been real easy for us to just threaten and just keep them in line. But I tell you what, the Lord impressed upon me very early in ministry that don't pursue just the external stuff as if that's the only thing that matters, but, but pursue the heart because then the external stuff will take care of itself because when the heart is changed, the outside will be changed as well. And so we pursue that here at Elm Grove. We want life change for you. I don't want you to come to church and think, well, I, well, I went to church. I guess that's good enough. Is that what that pastor's want me to do is show up and smile and nod and act like I'm paying attention? That's not the point. I want you to get into God's Word. That's why we stay in God's Word. That's why we, we, we look at it and we, we stay there. We preach from that and we teach from that and we read from that and we look at it. Not because we want just external change. We want the inside to well up on the outside because new life on the inside is going to produce New life on the outside. New life equals new language. Your words reveal your heart. So take an inventory. Now think about this morning, yesterday, last week. Just think about it for just a second. What did your words reveal about your heart? You can't deny that your words revealed your heart. Plain and simple. Not because I said it, because God said it. So what did your words reveal this week? What, what did, there, did your words say about really what's going on in your heart? Really. Take an inventory. What did you say? How did you say it? Well, I just spoke the truth. Really. Okay. The Bible says speak the truth in love, which means it changes the way you speak the truth. So not only what did you say, but how did you say it? What was your tone? Maybe you said something this week and you're saying, where did that come from? Well, where it came from your heart. The mouth speaks what's in the heart. It reveals it. And so where did it come from? If your language is rotten, then what also is rotten? Your heart. If your language is negative all the time, what also is negative all the time? Your heart. I mean, it, it, uh, these, these, you can draw the, the conclusions. If your speech is positive and uplifting, what's going on in your heart? Joy and uplifting. It's, I mean, it's not that hard to figure out. So take an inventory. Your words reveal your heart. And for some of us, when we take that inventory, it's very, very convicting. And I hope that, as Paul writes to the Corinthians, that it's not convicting and you walk away feeling bad. I hope it's convicting to the point where it turns us to God in repentance, Paul says. He said, I'm thankful that you were made sorrowful, not because I wanted to hurt your feelings, but because I wanted you to turn toward God. And so if you look at your week and you say, my words reveal my heart is, is out of line. Then, then don't leave here discouraged and, oh, I'm awful and I'm worthless. No, leave here having turned to God and saying, God, I know my heart needs to be cleaned up by you. So, God, I turn to you because my words have revealed what's in my heart. And I'm giving you, fresh and anew, my heart again. Clean me up so that my words then reflect that. So our words reveal what's in our hearts. Not only that, but our words indicate spiritual maturity. Our words indicate spiritual maturity. <clears throat> In James chapter 3, verse 2, the second part of verse 2, he says this, If anyone does not stumble, that's another word for sin, in what he says, 
He is what? A mature man who is also able to control his whole body. Some of your versions may say he is perfect. And that's just another way of saying he is spiritually mature. He has moved down the road with Jesus. He is not the same person he was at the moment of salvation. There has been growth in his life if he is now able to speak differently. If you don't sin as much with your words as much as you used to, then it's a sign of spiritual growth. None of us are perfected. We're not talking about sinless perfection. Sanctification, the process of being cleaned up by God, is a progressive and lifelong process. But it does include those markers along the way when you look back and say, I'm not necessarily who I want to be, but thank God I'm not who I used to be, and God is working in my life. And so we know that our words indicate spiritual maturity. The depth of that spiritual maturity is revealed in what you say and how you say it. Because the closer you get to Jesus, the more your words will change because your heart continues to change. And of course, the opposite is true. An uncontrolled tongue really reveals an uncontrolled person. Someone who has no reign whatsoever on their heart, who's not yielded themselves to, to Jesus Christ, who's not given themselves over to Him. And so certainly we know that an uncontrolled tongue or immature speech reveals a spiritually immature person. And if you want to know how spiritually mature a person is, just listen to what they say, what they talk about, what's on their, what do we say, heart. Well, share with me what's on your heart. Why do we say that? Because we know that's what's really important to you. Talk to me about what really matters. What's on your heart. Not only do they reveal your heart and indicate spiritual maturity, but your words, as we well know, have tremendous power. Your words have tremendous power. James chapter 3 again. Verse 3 says this. Now when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we also guide the whole animal. Just tug a little here, tug a little there, and the animal moves. And consider ships, though very large and driven by fierce winds, are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So too, though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. Consider how large a forest a small fire ignites. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among the parts of our bodies. It pollutes the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is set on fire by hell. For every creature, animal or bird, is tamed by the tongue, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. It is powerful. In Proverbs, it says, Your words have the power of life and death. Well, I don't have to tell you this. I don't have to. I really don't. This is common knowledge. Some of you, you've experienced that, and you know that someone else's words were powerful to you. Sometimes for good, but many times not. And you could go back even now, and you may be an adult, a grown-up. You may be in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, beyond that, and you can go back to a time when you were a child and you still remember those words. So powerful. So destructive. Set your whole life on fire, those words did. Some of you have experienced that, and you say, I know what you're talking about. Words do indeed have tremendous power. The tongue can more quickly, I believe, destroy than anything else. What we say carries with it more power, I think, than most anything else that we can even do. 
We can speak anything at any time. We can't do anything at any time. You with me? But you can say anything at any time. We can sin so much more easily with our words than with any other part of our body. Words hurt when they are not used properly. Why? Because we know that when somebody speaks something, where does it come from? Their heart. And when they say, well, I didn't really mean that, I'm not sure I believe them. Why? Because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Did they mean it? Most likely. Can they change? Sure. But did they mean it? Absolutely. That's why words hurt so much. That's why we have to be careful what we say because they carry such tremendous power. We'll get to more on that in the upcoming weeks. But I want to round things out today by giving you one overarching truth. There's the groundwork. Your words matter because they reveal your heart, because they indicate spiritual maturity, and because they have tremendous power. That's sort of our our grid through which we'll see these verses over the next couple of weeks. So let's store that away and keep that in our minds, and we'll we'll sort of reverberate around that. But I want to give you this one truth today from from James that that I want you to take away, that because of of, of the the power and the, the spiritual maturity and the revealing of our heart, all that because of our words, that this is true, and it is very simply this, that you... Are, and I say you, just you in general, you and I, are accountable for every word you speak. And just write that part down. This is a continuing sentence. I'll finish the rest of it in just a minute. You are accountable for every word you speak. James, again here in chapter 3, he says, Not many should become teachers, my brothers, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment. Then he says at the beginning of verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways. And by implication, he's saying speech is definitely one of them. We all stumble in our speech. We all have issues. We all sin when it comes to our speech. But just because, well, it's just what everybody does, does not mean that we are not accountable for that. There is no one to blame for our speech but us. That's it. There is no one who makes you say anything whatsoever. Out of the overflow of your heart, out of the overflow of my heart, the mouth speaks. And so certainly as we stumble in many ways, speech is one of them. Jesus spoke about it in in Matthew chapter 12. And he, he, he goes on after verse 34, after he says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. He goes on to say that you will be held accountable. You will give an account for every careless word you say. How about that? Your words matter because you are accountable for every word you speak. And that means in all situations. In all situations. Not just when it's easy, you're here at church. You sit there right now, and I, I, would, I would venture to say that very few of you this morning, during the sermon, are going to sin with your words. Why? Because you're not talking. Very few of you. But in all situations, every word you speak. What happens when you leave here and you didn't like the sermon? What are you going to do then? What happens when somebody cuts you off out of the parking lot? And they've been doing that to you every single week. What are they doing? You know, and then you get up, you know, you're trying to turn there at, at 12th and Main. And that person in front of you just inching forward. They won't turn. What are you going to do then? Goodness, in every situation, what happens when you get home? And that heated discussion you began on the way to church continues. Those irritations are the same. What are you going to do in every situation around any particular person? 
in every setting, in every place, and while you're experiencing every emotion, you are accountable for every word you say. Do you realize that scientists, though they can't prove it, they believe that if we had the right technology, that because when sounds leave, they are emitted on sound waves that never end, you may not be able to hear them anymore, but they never end. They believe that they had the right technology. They could, could reconstruct every word that has ever been spoken and play it again. How about that? That's scary. That is a scary thought. Because one day they might do that. Goodness, one day they may actually do that. And those words that you've said that you thought nobody else was going to hear, hmm, how about that? But you know what the Bible says? That we are accountable. God knows. And we are accountable for every single word we say. I used to have people who I played baseball with who would apologize to me when they would utter a particular word constructed most of the time of four letters or thereabouts. And they would utter a few words and they, oh, hey, man, I'm sorry. They, they knew I didn't speak that way. They knew I was a Christian and, you know, I was a church guy and all that. And, hey, man, listen, I'm sorry. And, you know, I would say, well, hey, that's cool, but you're not really accountable to me. That's what I'd tell them. And I appreciate the fact that folks would be sensitive to that. And I may not want to hear that. Okay, fine. But I always try to point them back to who really are you accountable to? It's not me. It's accountable to God. And so your language is, you're not accountable to the pastor. Maybe I could help you, but you're not accountable to me. I'm not, I'm not the eternal judge of humanity. God is. And so we're not accountable only to each other, but ultimately to God. How do you know then? And this is, this is the question that I wrote down as I was studying this. How do you know when you've sinned with your words? You say, well, hey, yeah, that's great. I know I'm accountable. How do I know when I've gone wrong? Turn with me to Ephesians real quick. Turn back to the left a little bit. Ephesians, a small book, <clears throat> between James and Romans. You'll see it. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Ephesians chapter 4. Just write, if you're not turning there, that's fine. Write down the reference. But if you got your Bible, go ahead and turn there. Now let's look at it. Ephesians chapter 4, look at verse 25. He's talking about living this new life in Christ. That, that he's made you new on the inside. And so, so as a result, what are the implications of that? What then should we do? We have to, obviously, we have to be instructed on how we live as new people. And here's what, here's what Paul gives us. Since you put away lying, some of your versions may say falsehood, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor. Because we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. The thief must no longer steal, verse 28. Instead, he must do honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Verse 29. No rotten talk should come out of your mouth, but only what is good for the building up of someone in need in order to give grace to those who hear. Verse 31. All bitterness, anger, and wrath, insult, and slander must be removed from you along with all wickedness. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as Christ also, just as God also forgave you in Christ. How do you know when you've gone wrong? Well, Paul gives us some things. Falsehood, lying. Even small ones. Even small ones. Even ones that, well, it's not really going to hurt anybody. Even small ones. Lying. Falsehood. What else does he say? Rotten talk. Vulgarity. Cursing. Coarse joking, some versions may say. Those things that you say under your breath and so on, they matter. They matter. Are we talking about sinless perfection? No, but I want you to be informed on what God's Word says. 
So that when, then we can accommodate our lives to it. We can yield and say, God, help me in this area. Some of you may struggle with this. This may be your issue. You may say, mm, man, I know what you're saying. I know it's right. I know it's true, but mm, this is a struggle. I just want you to be informed so that then you can allow God to work in your heart. He'll change your heart, and by implication and direct result, He'll change your speech. And so I just want you to be informed about what it is. Where do we go wrong? And then in Colossians, turn the page just a little bit if you still got your place in Ephesians, Colossians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. He says, But now you must also put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. He says again, do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with its practices. So he reiterates it, talking about the filthy language, the vulgarity, the lying, the slander, the insults, the talking about people, just the negative speech all around. And so he says those things are to be put off. Why? Because we are putting on the new person. And so certainly it's something we need to then accommodate our lives to. So what do we do? We put off the old, we put on the new. We speak truth instead of falsehood. We do our best when we are tempted to say something that is vulgar or negative or whatever. We do our best to say, God, in this moment, help me. Does that mean you're going to be perfect walking out? Don't, don't misread me. That just means that, you know what, my life is on track with where God is leading my heart and I want Him to change me and I will yield every part of myself to Him and help Him or allow Him to help me to become the person, the spiritually mature person He wants me to be. And you say, well, I, that's just my habits, just the way I talk. Let God get a hold of your heart. Let Him determine what your habits are to be. And I guarantee you, He won't let you down. You won't miss whatever habit He may remove and then replace it with something else. You won't miss it. You'll be thankful for who God has made you to be. And certainly in this area is true. So put on truth. We build others up. We measure our words. We're thoughtful, purposeful. We speak so that God is glorified. In verse 6 of Colossians 4, he says this, Your speech should always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. Season with salt, adding something positive to the conversation, building others up, something that is fitting for that particular moment, that produces a positive effect, on everyone else. So what do you add to the conversation? What are your responses like in typical talk? What's your tone of voice most of the time? Take an inventory. Think about it. How do you speak to your spouse? How do you speak to your children? How do you speak to your boss? Your employees? Your coworkers, your friends, the people you don't like, the person who cuts you off in traffic, your crazy neighbor, all those people. How do you speak to them? How do you speak to yourself? Realize that <clears throat> one of the things that, for whatever reason, that I've I, I just as and I thank God for it, has not ever been a struggle for me. And I say this not because of Oh, look at look at, at this greatness, because the Lord knows that's not true. I've never struggled with cussing. Never. I don't know why. It's never a habit for me. Never, it's just not even now. Just when I get angry, that's not what I think of. But one of the areas that I struggle with is how I talk 
to myself. I struggle with how I degrade and will berate myself internally. You may never hear those words, but I hear them. Maybe you're a person who struggles with the same thing. I think we are accountable for what we say to ourselves. Do we use negative language? Do we beat ourselves up when God is saying, look, just just move on. (laughs) I've forgiven you. It's time to move forward. I think we're accountable for those things. I struggle with that big time. I really do. So as I think about these things, there are certainly areas of my life that I may not struggle in one area where you may struggle. You may not struggle in a certain area where I struggle, but I, I join you in this seeming frustration over our words and wanting God to change me. You and I are accountable every word we speak. In the conclusion of that sentence, you are accountable for every word you speak and everything you teach. You say, well, this doesn't really apply to me. It, it, it may. Back in James chapter 3, he says, verse 1, Not many should become teachers, knowing that we will receive a what? A stricter judgment, a greater judgment, your version may say. Not many should become teachers. The word teachers there uses by first implication means pastors and teachers that are official in the church. And so he's talking to me. But he also, that, that word has the connotation of of the others who would also teach in the church. And so in our setting today, we would include our Sunday school teachers, any folks who, who may lead a group of any kind, those who teach children, those who, who have influence and so on. We, we are accountable for what we, what we teach. And I would say that, that by further implication, I think we can extend this also to those of us who are parents who teach our children, those of us who are grandparents who lead our families, and so on. I think by implication, we all in some way are touched by this. What he's not saying here is don't teach. He wants teachers. But what he is saying is don't rush into it. Take it as seriously as God takes it. So if you're a teacher, if you're a person who has a position of influence and authority over others, then James says for you, look, take it as seriously as God takes it. Why? Because you will receive a stricter judgment. Some folks will, will tell me at the end of a sermon, hey man, that, that sermon was for me. Man, that, I've been dealing with that all week long. Now that's something I really needed to hear. And my response typically is, well, I'm with you. Because I got beaten up by it all week long, having to prepare to get up and, and say it. I understand and realize, and many of you do too, those of you that have, that have taught anything before, you realize the stricter judgment, the, the, the holding your feet to the fire, so to speak, that comes from the words that you teach. Because if your life doesn't match up with what you teach, what are you? You're a hypocrite. That's pretty simple. So not only are we judged in this way by God for what we say, but who else judges us in this way if you're a teacher, if you're someone who teaches? People. They're looking. They're watching. And so... How do we avoid then being condemned, being strictly judged by what we teach? You make sure what you're teaching is right. (laughs) You don't don't teach anything that's not from the Scripture. We make sure that it matches how we live. Make sure that we're prepared every single time we go to teach. 
We make sure that we're doing it for the right reasons, not because we think that it's glamorous or, oh, I'd like to stand up there and do that, or, oh, hey, yeah, that'd be great. Look at, look at what would come my way. But we do it because we're called by God and humbled in the process. And sometimes we even may fight it because, God, I don't want that stricter judgment. But you know what, God, maybe has called you to. We do it for His glory alone. So James says, don't be too quick to shove somebody into that teaching role. Don't be too quick to pursue it yourself. And he says, when you do, make sure that you're called. Make sure that you do it right. Make sure that you're prepared. Make sure that your life matches up with what you teach. Teaching is absolutely a blessed calling. And it's a huge responsibility. And I'm so thankful for how many folks in our body have responded to God's call to lead and to teach and to help and to, to do that. And, and at the same time, I, I pass along to you, James says, my brothers, and so my church family, I join you in that we will be judged according to a stricter, stricter judgment. And so let's be prepared. Let's make sure that it's right. Let's do it for the right reasons. And let's remember that we're accountable for everything that we teach. And so our words matter, and we are accountable for them. And the accountability, of course, that, that James talks about for words is really just a, an implication of the greater accountability that each of us have before God for our lives. Each one of us is accountable not just for our words, though that certainly is part of it, a huge part of our lives, but more importantly than that, we are accountable for our very lives, for the sins that we have committed. And the Bible makes clear. That as God's creations, we, you and I, are accountable to Him. And it's only through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross that we find forgiveness for those sins that, that we are accountable for. It's only through His death. That's the only way to be forgiven. That's it. You have to travel that path. And that path is only traveled through faith. Not travel through doing a bunch of good things. You can walk out of here and say, well, I'm just not going to say those words anymore. And your heart will be maybe no different than it's ever been. Why? Because you didn't come to the cross. You didn't come to Jesus Christ by faith alone and receive His free gift of salvation by grace alone. His unmerited favor on sinners like you and me. That's the only way we can receive the power to have our guilt removed. The only way we can receive... Freedom from the penalty of sin, which is punishment forever. And freedom from the power of sin, which is an inept life here on earth. And apart from that, apart from faith in Jesus alone, receiving His gift of salvation through His grace alone, apart from that, and we'll, we'll bear the penalty for our sins for all eternity. But the good news, you realize the, the word gospel means good news. Bad news is, you're accountable for your sins. Bad news is, if you don't repent and believe in Jesus Christ as the only way for salvation, bad news is eternity awaits in hell. Bad news. Good news. Good news is you don't have to go down that path. You don't have to. Why? Not because you're so great, but because Jesus died on the cross. God, in the form of Jesus Christ, came to earth, lived a sinless life. The only way He could die for our sins is to be sinless. And He did it. And it's His death that God accepts on our behalf. Don't ask me why He does that. Because He loves us. That's it. It's the only way I can figure it out. But His death satisfies the wrath of God. And atones for, covers 
our sin. And the only way that we receive that is through faith. Believing that it's true and believing the implications of that truth that I then must yield my life to Jesus Christ and say, you're in charge. There it is. Good news. Good news. We end on a great note today. You're accountable for your life, but guess what? Jesus paid the price. So today, maybe you're a person who says, you know what? That's what I need to do. But I realize I'm guilty before God. And I'm giving my life to Him. I want that penalty gone. I want Him in my life. You can do it. Are there any magic words? Nope. You just pray and ask the Lord to come into your life. Forgive you. You tell Him you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and you want Him to save you. And then what do you do? Well, you take the next step toward Him. And you say, you know what, God? I I want you to lead me. Help me. Change me. Make me who you want me to be. You're accountable for your life. And certainly we learned this morning. You're accountable for your words. And so maybe some of us this morning need to repent. Maybe we need to apologize to somebody. Maybe we need to ask for God's help. Because maybe this is a particular area of your life where it's just over and over that you struggle with it. And you say, man, I need God's help. And in asking for God's help, He'll help you. But it's on His terms. And still be in charge. And it'll be great. You won't miss it. But you've got to go through His way. So maybe this morning you'd turn your life over to Jesus. Or, or you'd say, you know what? I, I repent of this problem I have with my words. I want to apologize to somebody. Maybe your wife. Maybe your husband. Maybe your children. Maybe a grandmother, grandfather. Maybe a friend. Whatever it may be. Maybe it's your boss when you go to work tomorrow. And you would shock them. I'm sorry. Wait a minute. What did you say? I'm sorry. You'd floor them. And then you'd have to perform CPR to get them back up off the floor. And then tell them about Jesus. So they would be revived physically and spiritually all in one moment. How about that? Maybe that would be it. Let's pray. Lord, as we close this morning, we're so thankful. That even though we are accountable for our lives, that you paid the price to set us free from sin. So Lord, we come to you through your grace alone and by faith in Jesus Christ alone this morning. We count on him alone for salvation. Lord, for those who desperately need to do that, I pray you'd not leave them alone this morning. Lord, they may be so bold as to pray and ask you to come into their lives and then maybe to come down front and just say, Pastor, that's what I just did. And to make that public. Lord, help us this morning to be people who will choose to repent and apologize and ask for your help and yield to you in this area of speech. Help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.